Colossians 1, 21-23, and I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your copy of Scripture open and to be reading along there with me. Colossians 1, 21-23. Again, let's go to the Lord and ask Him to bless the preaching of His Word as that is the central way that He saves and sanctifies His people. Let's pray. Father, we are delighted to come and to listen to You speak. We are delighted that You do speak to us and that Your Word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We are even thankful for those portions of Your Word that speak difficult things to us, for we need to hear them. We thank You that all Scripture is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that we may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Our God, we are thankful that You change us through Your Word and pray this morning that You would change us by the preaching of Your Word, that the inner depths of our hearts would be changed, that we would have soft hearts to receive, not my words, O God, but Your words. We pray that You would keep me from saying anything I ought not say and make us attentive together that we might be built up in Christ. We pray these things in His name. Amen. Colossians 1, verses 21 to 23. This is God's holy inspired and inerrant word to us this morning. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Sends the reading of God's word to us this morning. Well, I have many times sat on a plane 35,000 feet up in the air, going about 500 miles an hour, listening to my iPod and listening to some fairly amazing music while I work on a computer, an instrument that is really quite remarkable and that shows how remarkable all of that shows how remarkable man actually is. That man, in all of his knowledge and ability, can accomplish the things that he can accomplish. Man really is a remarkable creature. We really are remarkable creatures. And yet, and yet, as we come to this text this morning, we see that man really is the most despicable creature and that God is the only one who can actually reconcile man and do for man what man could never do for himself and what man needs most. God does through his son, Jesus Christ, who is God and man for us. The Apostle Paul has been um, on a diatribe, as it were, against those that were saying, well, you need Christ at the beginning of your Christian life, but if you really want to grow in spirituality, you need these other spiritual experiences. You need these, he'll come to this in chapter 2, you need to learn some more philosophy. And others were saying you need to learn about angels, and you need to learn about the supernatural world that the Bible tells us very little about outside of the things of God and Christ. Very vague things about it, and the Colossians were in danger of falling into angel worship. They were in danger of moving away from Christ and believing these false teachers to these mystical, philosophical deceptions. And Paul will say the answer to this, as we saw last week, is Jesus Christ. 
that in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, that he is infinite in his person, that there is an inexhaustible wealth of knowledge and wisdom and understanding and spiritual edification in Jesus, and that we never move away from Jesus, and that the surest way, the surest way to fail is to actually move from Jesus to some other kind of spirituality, be it ever so attractive. And the Apostle Paul in verse 15 and following has told us that Christ is the creator, that he is the sustainer of all things, and that he is the head of the church, that he is the redeemer. Here in these verses, in verses 21 and following, he is now honing in specifically on what Jesus Christ, the creator, the sustainer, and the redeemer, has done in the work of redemption for us, for the Colossians, for those who had professed faith in him. And he's reminding them, he's reminding them not of what they did. He's going to actually remind them of what they are, how despicable they actually are and we actually are in ourselves and what we actually are by nature. But he's going to remind them what God has done for them. He's going to remind them, the Apostle Paul is, in the simplest way of saying it, God-centered. He is God-centered, God-focused, God-enraptured. He is focused on what the infinite God has done and what he has done for us in his son Jesus so that we be established in him, so that we would be established in him and not moved away from him. It's very attractive. Let me say this at the outset. It's very attractive to think, well, I've got Jesus now. What do I need to do? And move away from Jesus. And Paul is actually going to say there in verse 23 that we're reconciled to God through the death of Jesus if we continue in the faith and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Not moving on to something else, but staying in the gospel. Being rooted in the work of Jesus being reminded of Jesus and what he is for us. And so we're going to see several things this morning. First, we're going to see the need for reconciliation. You'll see that in verse 21. And then we're going to see the act of reconciliation. You'll see that in verse 22. And then we're going to see the fruit of reconciliation. And finally, the assurance of reconciliation. The need, the act, the fruit, and the assurance. Well, notice in verse 21, Paul turns now to the Colossians, having said all these a general and amazing things about Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done. He says, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind in evil deeds, he has now reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. Paul does not talk about all the accomplishments of men. Paul doesn't talk about all that mankind had accomplished to that point in human civilization. By the way, much had been accomplished. Rome had taken over the known world. Road systems leading in and out of Rome had been established. There had been great advances, and Paul doesn't mention any of them. And if there had been airplanes and iPods and computers, Paul would not have mentioned them. Paul says, here's what you need to know about yourself in Adam as a fallen creature. You were aliens, alienated from God, from the life of God, and enemies in your mind by wicked works. And that is the grand description of what man is. And I know that it's not popular, and I know that maybe some of you don't even like hearing that, but that is what you are and I am by nature. Alienated and enemies from God, hating God, that's the Bible's testimony that we hated God. I know that men will say, I didn't hate God. I, I never consciously hated God. We'll see all that the scriptures say this morning about that. But the need for reconciliation is set. Reconciliation is set against the background 
of what Paul says about us here in verse 21. I want us to notice two things first. Notice that the first description that Paul gives of man is that mankind is alienated from God. Now, the Westminster Shorter Catechism is going to say, um, basically, what did the fall what did the fall produce? What happened when Adam fell? And they're going to give the answer that Adam brought on all of his descendants, such you and me, sin and misery. Sin and misery. Everything in this life that we don't like can be categorized in those two things. Sin and misery. You are sinful and you are miserable. I am sinful and I am miserable. When we get sick, that is misery. When we hurt someone, that is sin. When we want to do what's wrong, that's sin. When we reap the consequences of that, that's misery. The greatest misery, the Bible says, is death. All of us are going to reap that one day because Adam merited death for us. That's why we die. Um, I always like asking people whenever I witness, why, why do people die? And they start rattling off. Well, they get sick, they have a heart attack, they have some genetic disease. No, that's how they die. The why they die is because they are alienated from God. Adam knew God. Adam had fellowship with God. Adam had unbroken fellowship with God. And when he disobeyed God, what did he do? He hid behind a tree that God had made. He was now alienated from God. That was a picture. Him hearing God coming, he was terrified of God. He had love for God previously. Now he's terrified of God. And men by nature are terrified of God. And they are alienated from God. And so when questions are asked, when hard things happen, the questions usually are, why would God do this? Why would God do this to me? I don't understand why God would do this. Why would God take my child? Why would God allow this to happen? And that is the alienation working out of the enmity, the misery that comes from the sin and the rebellion. And so notice here that the apostle says, you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind doing evil, he has now reconciled. Now, it might seem strange to you to hear somebody say that all men hate God because many men will say, I've always known God. You'll hear people say, I've always believed in God. I've always known God. I've always... No, God's just always been a big part of my life. The Bible says God has always been a big part of your hatred. He has been the big object of your hatred by nature. And if anybody says, I've just always known God was a big part of my life, and they they deny this aspect of what we are, they do not know God. And they are actually showing their enmity. They're actually showing that they don't love God by nature. Now, nobody is going to say, I really hate God. Nobody is going to say that. But that's the Bible's testimony, that we were alienated and enemies in our mind by wicked works. Let me read to you from Romans 1, if you want to turn over there. It's probably the greatest description in the Bible, Romans 1, the Apostle Paul setting out what man is by nature, what we are by nature, and in relationship to God. And notice in verses 20 and following, he'll say that all men know that there's God. They see his power, they see his trees, they see his sky, they see everything around. You know, I had a professor who used to say to people whenever they said, well, give me proof of God, he'd say, you're proof. You are the Imago Dei. You are proof of God. And Romans 1 teaches that. All men know that there's a God. And yet, notice what Paul says they do with that knowledge in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And then notice what he says in verse 26. Notice this. 
For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passion, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Men likewise gave up natural relations with women, were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, now, if you thought you got off from the last description, listen to this. Envy, covetousness, malice. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God. This God, the Holy Spirit, wants us to reckon with our hearts before this. Gossips, slanderers, haters of God. Notice what else he says here. Insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve death, they not only do them, but give approval to those that practice them. That's the Bible's description about the natural man. I remember as a new Christian reading that and saying, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me. That's what the Christian says. The Christian says, that's me. That's exactly what I, that's the mirror of what I am. And it shows us what we need. And so secondly, the act, the act of reconciliation. Notice how Paul moves very quickly from verse 21 to 22. No sooner does he say that in the mind and in the actions, man is an enemy of God. He says, he has now reconciled in Christ's body of flesh by death. He has now reconciled. Reconciliation is really the great theme of the Bible. The great theme of the Bible is reconciliation. You know, there are television shows that make a fortune on showing a mother and a daughter reconciled after 15, 20, 30 years. There are shows that people are, um, people are caught up with the idea of reconciliation. We love that idea because there's harmony, there's peace, there is reuniting, there's wholeness. And, and what God, the living God, is about is about reconciling men to himself. He is the one that takes the action. Notice it doesn't say anything about what you do. We do nothing to reconcile ourselves to God. It says God reconciled us when we were enemies. So we hated God. We hated everything about God. We didn't want God in our thoughts. As the psalmist said, men say no God and no men seek God and God sought us and he sent his son to die and to reconcile us to himself. He is the great agent of reconciliation. And so, if you want to have right thoughts about the God that we once hated, the right thought to have is he is a good and gracious God who wants to reconcile men to himself. He wants you to be reconciled to him. He has reconciled many of us to him. He is in the act of reconciliation. That is why our Lord Jesus is delaying his coming is because God is reconciling sinners to himself through the gospel. And it is specifically God the Father it is God the Father's heart and plan to reconcile sinners to himself. He, he could have left man in his miserable and sinful condition. He could have poured out all of his justice and wrath on all men. That would have been right for God to do. Let me say that as emphatically as I can. It would have been right for God to send every one of you to hell. It would have been right and good for God to have done that. But it is more glorious and more rich and more wonderful that God has decided to save a people for himself and to reconcile a people to himself. And the Father and the Son took counsel together to do that. 
And they became the agents of reconciliation. They said, I will reconcile these undeserving people to myself. I will reconcile my enemies to myself. Let me just say by way of implication, if we've been reconciled to God, how much ought we be about the business of reconciling with one another? We are to be imitators of God. He is the agent of reconciliation. I mourn, I mourn how many Christians I see waiting for somebody to take that action on themselves and be reconciled. It's a very rare thing, actually, to see someone seeking out reconciliation. And yet that is God's way. And God sought that out in us. And notice what the Apostle says. Not only did he seek it out, not only did he devise it, not only did he take the initiation in reconciliation, but he accomplishes it in himself. He says that he's reconciled us to himself in the body of his flesh through death. God took a human nature to himself and in the words of Dorothy Sayers, he drank his own medicine to heal us. He drank his own medicine at the cross to reconcile us and to heal us. He didn't say to you, well, you've been my enemy. You are my debtor. If you do this, 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 and this, I'll reconcile you and I'll be reconciled because you'll meet my terms. No, he set the terms and he met them himself and he did it so that if you believe in his son, you are reconciled to God through his death. And he destroyed the enmity and the act of reconciliation. What had to take place was war. Battle had to take place. That act of reconciliation, because of that hostility, there had to be war. God declared war on himself to reconcile enemies to himself. I had a friend who who said to me once, I don't know what you guys think about George Bush, but he said about George Bush that in order for George Bush to be president of righteousness and president of peace, he would have to declare war on himself. That's what God does. God is the God of righteousness. He is the God of peace. Those things do not absolve one another. They come together at the cross. God declares war on himself, on your sin, on his son, in the body of his flesh. All of that sin is dealt with. The enmity, the evil one is dealt with. Turn over to Colossians 2 quickly because Paul will unpack what he's saying here when he says all that Christ accomplishes in his death on the cross. Notice, picking up in verse 9 on, on the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in Jesus, he says, Notice in verse 11, you also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That's his death on the cross. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, he set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He has disarmed rulers and authorities. That's Satan, the evil one. He has disarmed rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame, triumphing over them in it. At Calvary, let me say this as clearly as I can, at Calvary, Jesus in, his, in the destruction of his flesh destroyed all of his and all of our enemies so that he could bring us to God. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. In that great chapter on reconciliation, he says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He took all of your enmity, all of your alienation, all of your hostility, and note, note when Jesus died on the cross in the body of flesh that he was alienated from God, wasn't he? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was cast out of Eden. 
he was cast out of the presence of God. He was driven away into the wilderness like the scapegoat. He carried the sins of the people away. He was dealt with in shame and misery and dishonor. He was constituted a sinner, the sinless one, being made sin for us. God taking the enmity. Now let me say this. How amazing is the God that we hated? How amazing is the God that we once hated? The God that we hated with all the fabric of our being, with our mind and our actions, doing what we want to do, thinking what we want to think. That God said, I will reconcile these people by taking their sin and punishment on myself. And so now, we who have been reconciled think about him and we love him. And that hatred has been turned to love. And in that reconciliation, our thoughts about God are thoughts that drive us to him, not away from him. Unlike Adam, who ran and hid, we run to him. We run to him with confidence because he has reconciled us to himself. Now, maybe you're not reconciled to God today. Maybe you're sitting here and you've not been reconciled. It means you're still his enemy. It means you're under his wrath. But God is calling men to be reconciled to him. Today, God is saying, be reconciled. Be reconciled. You know, Paul, I love in that parallel passage in 2 Corinthians 5, the apostle says, Christ, through the apostle and through ministers, implores you to be reconciled. Jesus implores men. He beseeches men. He pleads with men to come to believe the gospel, to believe that the enmity has been dealt with at the cross, to believe that the blood that he shed is sufficient, to believe that he has nailed transgressions to the tree, to believe that. The hardest thing in the world to believe the greatest thing in the world to believe, the freest thing in the world to believe, God implores you and pleads with you to believe this morning and be reconciled to God. And notice, notice now, thirdly, the fruit of this reconciliation. Not only did we need reconciliation, not only did he provide reconciliation, but there was a purpose in it. There was fruit from it. Notice what he says. He says, he is reconciled in the body of flesh by his death in order to presents you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Now, one of the marvelous things about Scripture is that on the one hand it says you can do nothing to gain salvation. You are full of evil and corruption and wickedness and worthlessness. And then on the other it says God is making you into the image of his Son once you've been reconciled. That, as Luther said, you are simultaneously a sinner and a saint. In Christ, you are perfectly righteous. You are perfectly holy because he obeyed the law for you. The apostles said, not having my own righteousness, which comes from the law, but the righteousness which comes from God by faith, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, is our holiness and righteousness before God. God looks at you with all the truth about the description we read in verse 21, and he sees you in Jesus as perfectly righteous, and he is transforming you into his image. Turn over to Titus, if you would. Titus chapter 2. The apostle has a great um, parallel verse there to, to these verses, where there's a connection between what Christ accomplished at the cross and what he does in us, and what he is doing through us. And notice, notice in Titus 2.11, these verses, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then again, if you missed that, he reiterates, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness 
and to purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. Jesus gave himself on the tree not only to forgive you, not only to justify you, not only to reconcile you to the Father and bring you into communion with himself. He did it to purify a people for himself. And that the cross is the great reconciling instrument and that the cross is the great purifying instrument. And so, in so much as we rest in what he did, we rest in that, we rest in him, we don't try to gain his favor, yet it's impossible that we are not now being made like him if we've been reconciled. And so Paul says the fruit of our reconciliation is that one day, in the consummation, Jesus will take all of his people and he will turn to his father and he will say, my father, here are your people, they are holy, they are blameless. On that day you will be perfectly free from sin if you're in Jesus. He will say they are holy, they are blameless, I have died for them, I have purchased them, I have reconciled them. And he will, in the words of our text, he will present us, present you, holy and blameless and above reproach to God. Now that means, in this life, two things. One, we are not yet holy and blameless and above reproach in that way. That's the language of consummation. That's the language of what Jesus is going to do once he comes and brings about the consummation of everything. But it also means that we pursue that in this life. And that we don't live, if you're in Jesus, we don't live like we're unregenerate. We don't live like we're unbelievers not reconciled to God. We live in fellowship and communion. We pursue those things that we once hated. We pursue the God we once hated. We pursue being what we are in Christ, and we pursue growing in grace. And that's what Titus says. Titus says, it's the grace of God that teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. All those things in Romans 1, they ought not be characteristic of us. Our lives ought not be marked out by slander and gossip and bitterness and envy and wrath. They ought not mark our lives out because Christ has taken the enmity in his body of flesh in his death. Now, finally, the assurance of reconciliation. How do I know? How do I know if I'm reconciled to God? Notice what the apostle says back in Colossians. He says, if indeed, if indeed, verse 23, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, if indeed you continue in the faith. So Paul is saying, if you want to know, have I been reconciled? If you want to know, am I going to one day be presented before God holy and blameless and above reproach? Well, here's the way to know. Continue in the faith. Continue, grounded, steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Let me say this. In all likeliness, some people in this church, in this church, maybe not here today, maybe here today, but in all likeliness, some people in this church will fall away from Jesus Christ. That's the testimony of every epistle. It's the testimony of some of Paul's companions. It's the testimony of elders in Ephesus in Acts 20. Paul says, from you, ravenous wolves will rise. It's the testimony of church history. It's the testimony of modern church history. It's the testimony of churches right now. I've had three brothers close to us in this denomination commit adultery, walk away from the Lord in the last two months. And so Paul says we are reconciled if we continue in the faith. And look, he's not saying if you work hard enough. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying if you're good enough. That's not what he's saying. He's saying continue believing the things that the Bible says about Jesus Christ. 
continue loving him, not loving sin. Continue putting sin to death and fleeing to him when you sin, when you fail. Confessing your sin. Confessing your sins to one another. Confessing your sins to the Lord. Regular worship attendance. Listen, Lord's Day worship is important because it keeps us in the faith, grounded and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. The more we put ourselves away from the means of God's grace, the more likely we're going to be to drift and, and that's how many apostatize and fall away. This is a very serious thing. You know, I hope that all of you are reconciled to God. I, I dread the thought that any of you are not. And yet, some of you may not be. And I dread the thought that any of you would drift from Jesus. And so, what Paul says is, continue hoping in the gospel. I mean, I love, I love that the remedy, the remedy is believe the best thing in the world for your souls that Jesus Christ has done for you. Keep believing it. Keep going to him. Keep abiding in him. Keep remaining in his word. Keep in prayer. Keep in fellowship. Keep close together to his body. He is the head of the body. He nourishes the body. That's the solution. That's what keeps us on the narrow path is our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, none can be lost if you're elect. If you belong, if the Father gave you to the Son, you're not going to be lost. You could fall from... Um, your communion, you can never lose the union that you have with Jesus. But you can go through times where you lapse, where you fall into sin, where you have no assurance, where you have doubts and fears, maybe even severe chastisements. God deals those ways with us. If we're not living in close communion with God, if we're not living in close communion with Jesus, we won't be assured of our reconciliation. And so we continue, we continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven by the God who reconciles men to himself in Jesus. As you go from this place today, I want you to go asking one question. Have I been reconciled to God? How you answer that question will depend on that last point. Are you continuing in the faith, grounded and steadfast, moved away from, the, or not moved away from the hope of the gospel, but are you reconciled to God. I want you to go home saying, am I reconciled to God? We have an amazing God who has done everything to bring us to himself. There's a little book. You may want to get it. It's called Coming Home to God. Palmer Robertson, Coming Home to God. That's what Paul has said. God has brought us home through the body of the flesh of the Lord Jesus crucified at Calvary. We are to abide and remain in him. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we love that you are a reconciler. And Lord Jesus, we love that you have reconciled us who were enemies in our mind and in our actions, who were unclean and impure. And we love even now, having been reconciled, that you are committed to presenting us holy and blameless and above reproach On that great day of judgment, we love, Lord Jesus, that you and your death on the cross continually bear fruit in us, that it is the the highway to heaven, that through your death on the cross and your resurrection, we are secure and grounded and steadfast. Father, give us the hope of the gospel today. Make that hope deep and penetrating and real in our souls. May we go home rejoicing that we know you, Lord, if there be any here who are under the, the... power of sin, who are under the 
dominion of sin, that there would be reconciliation today. Any true believers who have lived carelessly, we pray that there would be renewal in the gospel. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would cause us to rejoice now as we go from this place to rejoice in you and your finished work. We pray these things in your name. Amen.